Who is the most prideful person you know? Now, some of you have heard me ask that question before, and don't tell the person next to you the answer just yet. But who immediately comes to mind when you think of the most arrogant, self-centered person in your life? Someone that you see on TV, a celebrity, an athlete, a politician. They are the logo. They are the representative of what it means to be prideful and arrogant. Who is that person? Then I want to add another twist to that question today. Who is that in this church? In your mind, who is that person who is so prideful and arrogant, they could destroy all the good things that go on here. They could bring those things crashing down. We, God has been so good to us, and we talk about it so often, and hopefully don't get tired of hearing about His goodness and the unity and the growth and the hunger for God's Word here, the desire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, all of those good things that are going on. Who could destroy it all? Don't look at them right now if you think it's someone around you. But here is the answer. I am the most prideful person I know because I know everything about me. And that's the only way I can answer that question. And hopefully that's the way you would answer that question. It's because you know everything about you. You know all of your desires to exalt yourself. You know, apart from God's grace, what you would be like and how your pride would be displayed. And the reality is, when I ask that question, I have to say, I am the most prideful person I know, which means me, right up here, I could be the person to destroy all of this by exalting myself my agenda, my mission, my opinions, my preferences. And we all have that tendency and potential in us because we are sinners. And that's what it means to, to that's at the heart of our sin is to exalt ourselves, our feelings, our opinions, our wisdom, our desire above God. And reality is you may be sitting here today saying that's crazy, that's foolish talk. I know you thought that about me. You're like, no, he's the most humble person I know. I don't know why he's talking about himself like that. But whether you think that about yourself or not, here's the reality. Whether I think that about myself or not, Satan knows that about us. Satan knows that about you. He knows that you are the most prideful person in your life, and he is willing to play upon those desires to destroy not just this church, but your life, your family, and all of the good things that you are a part of by playing to your prideful desires. And that's why James here in this section of Scripture, he lays out for us two paths of wisdom in the church. There is a wisdom from hell that will destroy everything. And it plays upon our pride. And yet there is a wisdom from heaven that redeems and rescues everything in the church. 
And and that is displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who deserves to be exalted, humbled himself for the good of others. And so James asked the question in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Now he puts these two concepts together. And when he talks about wisdom here, he's not just talking about information. Who among you knows a lot and understands a lot and is very intelligent? They have a massive intellect. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, who is wise and understanding, which means you know how to live life. You know how to apply truth to your life. It is knowledge applied. You have a skill at applying God's word to your life, which he's talked about earlier in the book, hearing and doing. Who among you is skillful at that? Who among you knows how to apply God's word to their life? He says this, by his good conduct, let him show his works. The wise among you will be displayed in how they act by his good conduct. This means that his wisdom will be proven by good. The word can be translated beautiful character. You want to know the wise among you? You can see it in the way that they live. And it will be proven by their works. Remember James says works that come from faith. We trust in Christ. We believe in Christ alone for salvation. And that changes the way that we live. You will see the one who is wise among you by the way that they act. And how will they act? He says in the meekness of wisdom. Now this is a very powerful phrase. Meekness of wisdom. You can't be wise unless you are meek. And at the heart of wisdom is meekness. And the word can be translated gentleness. And it's not weakness. It's not passive. It's not that you're a pushover. It is power and strength harnessed. The the word conjures the picture of a horse. And and we think about a horse by nature that is wild. This thousand pound animal who has power and strength and could could run all over us and yet it is harnessed by the authority of another it is bridled for war for speed for good things and he says you want to know who is wise among you that they they are harnessed that their strength is harnessed and they are gentle They're not passive. They're not even quiet all the time. But who they are, their words and their works are harnessed by God. And James says it's the same kind of beauty that you see in a horse that is bridled, that you see in someone who is wise. It is beautiful to see wisdom. It is a beautiful display of wisdom when you see someone harnessed by God's authority. And so the question is, are you wise? Are you wise? Are you meek? (laughs) The one who is meek is wise. And so how do you you become meek? How do you become meek and and have this meekness that that leads to wisdom? Well, in Proverbs 1-7, we read that the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And what that means is you as a creature realize that I have a creator that created me. And so right off the bat, I'm not the boss. He's in charge. And I tremble before him as my creator in reverence that I'm not, I'm not the centerpiece of the universe. And so it begins with fear of the Lord, but it also continues in trusting that he is good. You want to be wise, you want to be meek, you realize that you're not the boss, you're not the one in control, God is. But you also understand that as your creator, he is good because he sent his son to die for your sins. And the cross proves that while you're not the one in control and you're not the authority, the one who is, is good. And he wants your good because he sent his son to die for you. So when he speaks to you as your authoritative creator, you listen for your good. And that's where meekness comes from. We, we understand I'm not authority, he is, but his authority is good. And so when he speaks to me and he calls me to do certain things, I am like that horse who sees the rider coming with the bridle. And instead of running away, that horse walks up to the rider and sticks his head out for the bridle to go on. That's how we come before God's word. Because we realize he is authority. He is in control. And in meekness, in prayer, we come before the word of God praying in repentance, God, teach me your will. Teach me your wisdom. I know it is best for me. I know it is good for me. And in meekness, we are bridled by the word of God. Meekness before the word of God is always asking, what does God say about this? Are you asking that question much in your life? Or are you just making your own decisions, doing things the way that you feel according to your opinion. And then when you mess things up, you go, oh, whoa, what does God say about this? But are you first right off the bat? Meek, God, what would you say about this? What would you say about my relationships? God, what does your word say about marriage? God, what does your word say about forgiveness? I have been hurt what does your word say about how I use my, my speech? Is that really that important? What does your word say uh, about the condition of my heart in this moment as I worry and I'm anxious? God, what does your word say about these things? Are you meek before the word of God? This is where wisdom begins in meekness before the word of God. So we see heaven's wisdom and now we're going to see hell's wisdom. Notice verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This word bitter, it means sharp, harsh. It means to repel. It is the same word for that, that sour taste in your mouth. When you taste something that is bitter, it is repelling. It is harsh. It is hard. And he says bitter jealousy. Jealousy means to boil with passion for yourself, for your own self-interest. And so bitter jealousy means that you are committed to yourself and you're boiling with those passions in a way that pushes others away. You are a bitter, harsh person. And he continues, and selfish ambition. This is just a self-mission. You're on mission for yourself. 
And he says, these things exist in our hearts. In your heart right now is bitter jealousy. In your heart right now is selfish ambition. You are boiling with desires to serve yourself, to do what you want to do. And you have a tendency to be on mission for that, to have ambition for yourself. This is all in our hearts, he says, the control center. And he says, if these things begin to control you in your hearts, he says, do not boast and be false to the truth. The word boast here means to gloat over someone who is defeated. And so you have a desire in your heart to do what you want to do. And so what do you do? You begin to defeat others. You begin to destroy others. You begin to speak against others. And he says, don't boast in that way because that would be false to the truth. He says, that would be false wisdom and a false gospel. He says, Jesus humiliated himself when he could have boasted. And he became a servant, a slave, and died on the cross for us. When you take those desires in your heart and you begin to exalt yourself over others, instead of humbling yourself for others, you are preaching a false gospel in the church. Notice he continues that explanation. This wisdom is not, it does not come from above. It's not the kind of wisdom God gives. You ask God for wisdom, he doesn't say serve yourself. Do what you want to do. Go with your heart. That is the worst advice ever. Because if you go with your heart, what are you going to do? You're going to go with jealousy, selfish ambition, and you're going to destroy everybody in your life. That doesn't come from above. Notice what kind of wisdom that is. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. He piles these words up to say, that's really, really bad. That's the worst thing you could do, is act according to your own desires. It is earthly, bound to the earth. It's natural. The, The word here, unspiritual, actually means animalistic. You're just going with your animalistic instinct to do what you want to do. Don't do that. And then he says demonic, devilish. Jesus humbled himself. Satan exalted himself. You're acting like a demon. And what do demons want to do? They want to destroy the church. That's why he continues verse 16. Hell's wisdom here leads to hell. For jealousy and selfish ambition, where they exist, he says, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In places where these desires are able to just bubble up and you're able to carry out your own mission and serve yourself. And notice the word here, exists, where these things are allowed to exist. They're not rebuked. They're not repented of. There will be disorder. The word for disorder is chaos. There will be anarchy. Anything goes. If everyone is living according to their own desires and doing what they want, there is anarchy, there is chaos, there are no rules. And what does that lead to? Notice the last part of verse 16, vile practice, depraved, foul, rotten, wicked behavior in the church. The church begins to stink because you just allow desires to get out of control and everybody does whatever they want and there's chaos, there's confusion, there's anarchy. This happens in our own life, by the way, though. When you have that desire in your heart and you say, well, that's just, that's just the way it is. That's just my personality. You know, I, I can't help that. That's the way I was raised. That's someone else's fault. And you begin to make excuses for those desires. And then you begin to act on those desires. 
And one of the things that we often do is we spiritualize those desires. We begin to look for things in the Bible to prop up those self-centered desires. And then eventually when we can't do that, we begin to deny the Bible altogether and say, well, that's, that's not true. A bunch of men wrote that book. That's ancient garbage. And then we begin to do whatever we want, and eventually we're just outright rotten, stinking, wicked, rebellious, prideful sinners. He's, that's, that's where those desires lead to, from the selfish desire to the vile practice that you don't care what anybody thinks about you. We have the tendency in our own hearts to do that. But we also have a tendency to allow that to go on in the context of the church, too. When you just allow your selfish ambition to get out of control and you begin to play on that desire and before long, everybody is on a mission for themselves. I want what I want. I want what I want. I want want what I want. And that leads to division. We divide up in what I want. My group's over here. Your group's over here. My opinion's over here. Your opinion's over here. And it's just anarchy. There are no rules. And Paul even wrote to the Corinthians and says, this is exactly what has gone on among you. The, the, the Corinthians had gone from division to disorder and, and to the point that they were celebrating immorality. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, how in the world do you have such sexual immorality in your church and you are celebrating it? You are calling the most wicked among you up front and celebrating that you are tolerating their immorality. How do you get to that point? It goes all the way back to every desire in this room to serve yourself. And as you allow that to run rampant in a church, it turns into disorder and chaos. Notice desire turns into division, to chaos, to wickedness. And it begins in our heart and we act upon it. And it turns into vile practices. Here's the truth. In a church where gossip and slander is expected, adultery and debauchery will soon be accepted. Let me say that again. Gossip and slander is expected when you walk into a community of faith and you just expect everybody's going to be divided up talking about everybody else. Underneath, there are going to be some vile practices in that church because there are no rules. There's no authority. What has gone on there? We are distracted from the mission that this is about Jesus and his glory. And my heart must be latched to his mission. And when I'm latched to his mission, there are rules. There's witness And I have to carry myself in a certain way and I have to treat you a certain way. But if it is my selfish desire and I can do whatever I want, I can treat everybody however I want. And when there's no rules, guess what we can do? We can do whatever we want. And these are the churches where pastors disqualify themselves. And families and marriages are destroyed and broken. And we sometimes wonder, how in the world did that happen? Well, something other than Jesus became the focus. Something other than God, the gospel became the mission and gossip and slander was allowed to creep in and create narratives and everybody was speaking their gospel about themselves and destroying everybody else and there became no rules, no holds barred. That happens. 
And it can happen here. And you could be the one, I could be the one to start it all. That's what James is warning us here. And so what do you do? Well, you repent constantly of that selfish desire. Because one of the little sparks could be, they didn't sing my song today. I really like that song. My kid didn't get an Awana badge this week. They ran out of Awana badges. Do they even know what they're doing back there? I want to park closer to the church. It's raining. I had to walk from the cul-de-sac today. Do you believe that? When are they going to buy some asphalt? Children's rooms, we need asphalt. You see how that can just go and go and go and go and go and go? And I am the chief complainer. (laughs) And I have to repent of those things that I want so badly. Because this isn't, hell's wisdom doesn't look like a scene out of Stranger Things. It's a scene around your kitchen table after BFG. And you got to be careful. I have to be careful. We have to be careful and repent and make sure that we are meek before the Word of God. So what does heaven's wisdom look like? Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason. Notice the progression. It begins in our desire and it leads to division. Division, hell's wisdom does, but here heaven's wisdom is the same thing. It begins in a pure heart. Your heart must be pure before the Word of God. You must believe the gospel, have the Spirit of God transforming you by the Word of God, and your heart must be focused on Christ. It must be pure, undefiled, no motives mixed, no motives for self-exaltation. It is purely selfless because of the gospel, and that only happens because of the gospel. You can't make your heart pure. You believe the gospel in meekness, and what does that lead to peaceable, gentle, open to reason. This is how you interact with one another. You're not, you're not contentious. You are gentle. You're not argumentative. You are forbearing and kind and soft. And so when someone comes to you and they confront you of sin, you're not pushing them away in anger. You're open to hearing. Why? Because you're a sinner. That can't be true about me. Yes, it can. And worse things could be true. So let me listen. Let's talk. Let's reason together. That's what he's saying here. You're reasonable. And so when you're confronted with truth, you repent of it. But then also, here's the description here. You're so at peace with God. You are at peace with others. And so when someone else's preference comes into view, you're willing to yield to that too. Because it's just a preference. You're going to stand on truth. But when it comes to preference, you're willing to be peaceable. doesn't really matter where that table goes. doesn't really matter what I want in this moment when it's a preference. And so you're, you're looking to reconcile constantly. You're not, you don't love conflict. You're not always defending yourself. You're not holding grudges. You're looking to repent. Okay, in this situation, in this conflict, what could I have done wrong? You tell me. How did I sin against you? What did I do? 
Will you please forgive me? And you're willing to do that. One of the problems I'm realizing in today's culture, and I know I'm just 45, and this generation, that's not what I'm doing right now, is that people don't talk to one another, and so they never resolve conflict. And we're just scared to walk up to someone and say, you sinned against me. And when someone does that, we run and hide and have nothing to do with them ever again. You're going to have conflict, and you're going to have a lot of conflict in this church as you look around. There are hundreds of desires and differences of opinion, and you better approach this place peaceable. And you better come in open to reason. I could be wrong. I could be the guilty one. How can I make peace with you? How can I accept the truth? And how can we talk it out? Why? Because we have peace with God. And because I have peace with God, I'm not fighting with you. If I'm fighting with God, I'm going to fight with you. But we preach a gospel of peace. And notice he says it's full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere He is at pains to stack in words that communicate God's goodness and mercy here. It is complete with mercy. There's no condemnation in your attitude, your behavior. It's full of good fruits. It's impartial. It's sincere. The picture here is of a person who has a fruit basket of mercy. And they're walking around and they're handing it out to whoever needs it. And the basket never runs dry. That's how you are in the church. The, the, the Christ-like wisdom is genuine concern. Notice, it's impartial. Genuine concern for whoever is in need. So you come to church and you're like, who's in need? Who can I serve? And you got your basket of care and mercy and you're willing to get on your hands and needs to help your brother and sister and whatever they need. That's how you approach things. And it's whoever. It's not the most easiest. It may mean you engage in the most messy of situation because it is the situation in front of you at the moment and you are willing to deal with it. It's whoever is in need and it's whatever they need. Do you need my work? Do you need my words of encouragement? Do you need my time? Do you need money? What can I do to help you? That is your disposition in the church because you are at peace with God. And that's what meekness and wisdom looks like in the church. And the reality is you can't divide and fight against one another when you're serving one another. That's impossible to do. When you are genuinely concerned about the good of one another, you won't fight with one another, and you'll be willing to resolve conflict and be peaceable. But if you come in and you're ready to fight, you'll find a fight. That's easy to do. What's hard to do is serve one another. And so one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, how much do I genuinely care about these people around me? Or am I someone that just comes in and evaluates what's going on all the time? Someone from a distant critiquing. Or, or when I see an issue, I'm willing to address the issue. Even if it's confronting someone in sin, I'm willing to deal with that. How, are you will, really willing to serve? Because here, here's the thing. Like people say in the church, that if you're not supposed to complain, grumble. So how do you make things better? Well, the people who are actually serving blood, sweat, and tears, when they come and they say, hey, we need to do this, or I don't like this, their critiques have credibility. Why? Because they are serving, and they genuinely care about one another. 
And, and, and maybe you're here today and you don't care about other people and you're seething, seething in selfish ambition. Here's what I would tell you to do. Start serving. Start, start looking for needs that you can meet. Start helping others around you. Because he says this in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This harvest, a crop of abundance, Christ-like service, love and mercy, things he's talked about throughout the whole book, gentleness. You're going to love your enemies as Christ loved you. You're going to be merciful to those just as Christ was merciful to you. And and there is a harvest of that kind of activity that, that can be sown in the church Notice how it's sown, sown in peace by those who make peace. The reality is here today, you need a church that's full of righteousness. That's what you need. That's what your family needs. That's what your kids, that's what your grandkids need. Years and years of a harvest of righteousness here, which means a a church that genuinely loves one another, is genuinely kind and merciful to one another. We talk to one another with with great gentleness and compassion. And we're always giving one another the benefit of the doubt. And we're willing to serve. That's what your kids need more than anything else in their life is a church and a place where they can always find that. Well, you are sowing what they will reap right now in the way that you serve this place. Are you sowing peace? Are you sowing peace? Notice he says, by making peace. And making peace isn't passive. Sometimes you have to deal with some hard things to get at peace. But we sow peace and we reap peace in the church. James says we reap the peace that we sow. And so if you want to live by heaven's uh, wisdom, you're going to reap peace in the church. But if you want to live by hell's wisdom, you're going to reap that too. Do you want your kids to inherit a place full of division and vile behavior? Do you want that? Do you want that for yourself 10 years from now? Well, you are sowing that today in the way that you treat one another. Do do you want that in the context of your church? What wisdom are you living by? Hell's wisdom or heaven's wisdom? If you want peace and holiness in the church You'll pursue peace with one another. Listen, one of the most beautiful, some of you are thinking, oh, he's preaching this sermon today. There must be conflict here. No, that's not what's going on. We do expository preaching, which is verse by verse through books of the Bible. We just come on this book today. That's not what's going on here. And one of the most beautiful things about this place in my life is I fight with the world all week and they don't play by the rules that Jesus gave us to play by. And it's hard. And you see dirty and nasty things. You see a lot of gossip and you see a lot of slander and you see a lot of backbiting. And when I come in this place, it's like an oasis of peace to me. Because I know you got my back. And I, I know you love me. And I know you love one another. And I know you care about one another. How do you do that? You sow that by loving and caring and being peaceable with one another, forgiving one another, not holding grudges. But here we see peacemaking is the work of plowing and sowing the fruit of wisdom in the church. We will reap what we sow. And it's not not passive. You understand that, right? 
And it begins by preaching Christ alone. Listen, I know the tendency in my own heart to want what I want. As I said earlier, I'm the most prideful person in this room because I know my desires. And I know the temptation to just want what I want. But if, I am never, if there ever comes a moment where this is a, not about Jesus, this is about Jeremy, fire me. Fire me. Get rid of me. We must preach Christ and Christ alone. We must be latched to His mission alone, not 200 different agendas. And we take all of our agendas and we put it on the altar of Christ alone. Are we preaching Christ alone? We must worship Christ alone. You know how you cultivate meekness in a church is by exalting Christ. He is greater than all of us. And then when there are things in the church that overwhelm preaching Christ or worshiping Christ or his mission, we confront them and we discard them immediately. We take the trash out. Because we don't want it to overwhelm and grow and turn into fungus and mildew in the church. We don't want that. And so we get rid of it. If you're going to overwhelm Christ with your mouth and your actions, we have to deal with it on personal levels. And as a church, ungodly division will be confronted face-to-face, not in the comments on Facebook. That's how we have to deal with one another. That's not Peacemaking is not passive. It is very, very aggressive. We can do all those things, but you always have to come down to the most important thing in your life. And it's this. Remembering you are the most prideful person you know. And every day realizing you could destroy all the good things in your life, including the good things that are going on here. And I, I do realize that about me. No, probably not like I should. That's what some of you, you, some of you say. You keep saying that, but I wish you'd realize it a little more. I, I, and it's scary. And I think going through James, that's one of the things that has been the, the worst for me personally. If you're close to me, you're around me, you realize you've been in a bad mood the last few weeks. It's because I've been so convicted by this book. And so you realize you could be the source of it all. I could be the source of it all. But ultimately, we remember Jesus, who is the meekest person you know. And he is so meek, he took all of your pride and he placed it on himself and he died for it. That is his humility and that is his meekness and that is your only hope to deal with your pride. And it is the only hope for this church. It's Christ. He is the one who saves us and rescues us from our pride. Thank God.